Welcome to Rural Matters. This is Michelle Rathman, your host, and what you're about to hear is part two of our special episode of a panel discussion that I moderated on October 28th at the first ever Rural Women's Summit, which was presented by the National Rural Assembly. Uh, I hope that you had an opportunity to listen to part one of this really enlightening discussion that focused on women leading interfaith movements in rural America. Now, just to refresh your memory, those panelists included Reverend Dr. Robin Deese from the United Methodist Church in Hartsville, South Carolina, Reverend Jen Bailey from Faith Matters and People Suffer, and Akolo Rashid from the International Museum of Muslim Cultures. Now, I invite you to sit back and enjoy part two of this very informative Rural Matters conversation. Perfect segue. I mean, because the thing is, we can think and talk about it all we want when we take action. Where, we, where the things, the magic happens, as they say. So I've got some great questions. I, I do want to start kind of walking through some of the main themes that we really set out to have some good uh, enlightening um, conversation. And the first topic that we chose is to talk about economic disparities. You know, in, in this country today, um, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people talk about how good the economy is today. And I take a look at my four grandsons who are eight, six, almost two, and just turned one. And I think about the insurmountable debt that they are being left with. And for, for those who are, you know, are making a killing in the stock market, good for you. But there are so many people who are not feeling the um, comfort level of, you know, economic <laughs> fortunes that have been, you know, um, uh, awarded to, to some, I mean, the haves and the have-nots. I think the divide, as we look at it, statistically speaking, I'm no mathematician, but I think it's getting bigger. So I'd like to just, again, hear from each of you, and you share with uh, the wonderful uh, participants here today just some of the things that your faith communities are doing to uh, address um, and, and you know, bring some kind of solutions towards economic disparities in the communities that you're serving. So any one of you who has some insight on that. Well, I would just say that, um, you know, for the African-American Muslim community, um, the, the way that we actually, um, well, me, but others as well, came into the idea of, you know, reclaiming religion after going through the, the movements and so forth, is that we needed uh, to uh, address, you know, this uh, economic uh, disparity and, and uh, the sense of, you know, uh, uh, what it, you know, uh, meant to have the dignity of work, uh, the dignity of, you know, building, you know, in our communities, uh, you know, actually having an, an opportunity to uh, rebuild our communities coming out of, you know, the, you know, the slavery era, and then, you know, Jim Crow and so forth. And so I think that um, uh, the most important thing now is that we continue, you know, to, uh, you know, promote uh, uh, this idea of that there is, in fact, you know, a, a, a real sense of economic disparity, you know, uh, within uh, the African-American community, uh, there, all of the all of, all of the indicators, you know, show that you know they are really lacking, uh, you know, in uh, economic opportunity and so forth. And so, uh, what we try and do through uh, the work that we do, uh, 
with the museum, uh, but also working with the Islamic community, is to uh, really build uh, a sense of, of you know, uh, people understanding that they, you know, uh, can, uh, you know, they can accomplish. You know, they have, you know, the same uh, uh, inner, you know, dignity, you know, inner uh, uh, development that anyone else has and to really, you know, take charge of that and, and not to, you know, allow themselves, you know, to be put into, uh, you know, a situation where they continue to, to um, suffer these economic disparities. You know, I, I was just thinking as you were saying that um, I, I am on Twitter a, a lot, and um, and I, I'm really passionate about programs such as SNAP um, being cut. And I had said something about you know, you know the Medicaid work requirements and with children, you know, school lunch programs and um, a fine person. I'm not sure, you know, who, who, what where they were from kind of criticized me and said, you know, I worked my way up, I pulled my way up, and I said, well, that's good, but children don't work. And, you know, they, they, they need the opportunity to be able to be nourished. Um, and so I, I look at that as a truly an economic disparity. And when we talk about food deserts, which we will, any other insight on economic disparities and how you address that with your, with your communities? I think at their best, one thing that both faith communities that are rooted in um, communities of color in particular and um, faith communities that are present, particularly for religious minorities in the United States, have done historically is provide alternative systems of things like mutual aid societies, right? Um, my home church on the south side of Chicago is one of the first places to have a credit union because banks wouldn't lend to black folks, right? So historically, um, both faith communities rooted in folks of color communities and religious minority communities have been really interesting and integral in rethinking our economic systems because we've had to work around them <laughs> to provide access to resources and financial capital in particular for our, our people. Today, I, I wish my church was better at that. <laughs> I, mean, I wish that we were thinking in that line. I think, um, unfortunately, many in my... Ooh, sorry, Bishop, if you're listening to this later. But... I, no, my bishop will be okay. <laughs> uh, which is that uh, many people, you know, have, um, at least in my, my faith tradition, have um, taken on a prosperity gospel that has left aside the sort of radical gospel of Christ that one might re read as a redistribution yes. of resources, <laughs> depending on where you are, or the, the presence of the early church in the book of Acts, which is all about sharing what you have, right, and as a way of rethinking your economy. Uh, I'll also put a plug for an organization that I love that is a new group. You know, the fastest growing group are those who identify as spiritual and not religious. Both those folks who identify as millennials and Gen Z are pretty rapidly disaffiliating with traditional religious traditions. But one of my favorite groups is a group called Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and Nuns, N-U-N-E-S. So this is a group of spiritual and not religious, predominantly millennials, who are partnering with Catholic sisters and helping them as orders are beginning to die out, right? Rethink about how they might redistribute land and access their own resources and wealth in a way that is faithful. And so that's one of the examples I see out there of folks who are beginning to rethink, even in this moment of disaffiliation from religion, how we leverage religious resources to create potential outcomes economically that are helpful for folks. Wonderful. So the next topic, and I'm great because we've got a question on this, and this is one that clearly you've identified as something that I'm passionate about, which is healthy health outcomes. 
And the question is, what role do faith-based leaders play in healthy communities? Um, you know, I think about in growing up in, you know, in the Catholic Church, and I've, I've, I've dabbled in a bit of all of them because I couldn't find a, a home. But, you know, um, when, when there was a passing, we, everyone brought, you know, hot dishes. If you're from the Midwest, you know what that is. Um, and we, we think about, and the work that I've done in, in Georgia and so forth, I just think about how unhealthy hospital cafeteria food is and we, we worked with a hospital where they actually eliminated the fryer in the kitchen and it, there was a mutiny. Uh, I mean, they were they were really angry that they that, that they lost the fryer. It wasn't to take away their right to have bacon because you still can have the bacon. But it was just listen. If we're going to be promoting wellness, we have to ourselves serve food that is healthy. And so I'm curious from your perspective, what are what role do faith leaders play, and this is a great question, in the health of their communities and, and the real issues that we're facing with obesity, diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, opioid crisis, and so forth? In, in my district, we have partnered with some of the um, small farmers who are quickly declining but one of the things that we've asked, because of the small towns I'm in, one town in particular has a subway shop, a gas station, and a huddle house. And that's it. And they would have to travel at least 20, 25 miles to the nearest grocery store. So, so we're partnering, or have partnered, with some of the farmers in those areas who take the vegetables an hour away <laughs> basically to uh, feed persons who are not in that immediate area. So we've asked many of the farmers to create what we call God's Acre. God's Acre is where they take an acre of land that is devoted to fresh fruits and vegetables, and persons in the community can come and glean those vegetables free of charge. We provide the seeds and whatever they do, the, 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 the mowing of the, the field, they do all of that. But we make sure that those persons come and utilize that one acre that we ask them to devote to God. Now, we also have opportunities where we have organizations within those counties who offer nutrition. We have the FAN program that has been started and faith, activity, nutrition. And so getting young people active again, getting families around the dinner table again, uh, we do that through the South Carolina Children's Trust, you know, just practical ways of helping people to eat healthy. Now we do know that many of our fast foods now accept the SNAP and the food stamp program. And so that is, and it's quick and it's easy for those parents who are working. And we are trying to create, we have churches in the area now who, in various areas, some of them are still very hesitant to meet the needs of persons who don't look like them. So, so we have backpack ministries that are being offered by churches where they put nutritional items in that backpack for the, for the students in that community to offer them a healthy option. But we still face challenges with that because as the majority of the churches in my particular district are Anglo, but the majority of the people who are in need are people of color. Right. Thank you. 
anything on your you offer? Wow, it's so interesting. My first job out of college in 2009, so 10 years out of college, uh, was as a food justice organizer working with faith communities in an urban context, so in Nashville, Tennessee. And one of the things that was really interesting about that experience and getting my, my feet wet <laughs> in this work um, through the lens of food justice was that it helped me contextualize health not just about being about meeting people's physical needs, but their spiritual and mental and emotional needs as well. So when I think about the offering of faith communities, there's a very practical offering, which is thinking about things like God's Acre, that's amazing. Yeah. You know, like projects like that that are about actually providing for the physical well-being of people. And I think there is a second part of this, which is how are we providing for the mental health and emotional and spiritual well-being of people as well. Um, and one of the things I feel encouraged by are our faith communities that are doing good work, seeing themselves as a, um, a repository of resources and distribution of information for people, um, particularly when it comes to things like mental health services or signing up, you know, we're really good at running food pantries and like make sure you have some SNAP applications available at those food pantries, right? So those faith communities that are beginning to think about what are the sort of systemic interventions that we can be doing to help people plug into programs that exist, but also not just stop there, but use our voice to advocate for those policies, public policies that align with our values of caring for folks, so whether that's advocating for SNAP or, um, you know, child welfare credits, right? Like, whatever it might be that actually lives into the core values of our traditions. And I will also say, I feel like I'm the negative Nancy. (laughs) That's not always incentivized in our communities, right? Um, That there are some strains within our faith communities who see um, any sort of engagement with uh, structural inequality as stepping outside our lane. And that's a difficult thing to combat. So that is where the role of... um, prophetic clergy and others who are willing to take the risk to actually stand and make some assertions um, about what is right and wrong in the public square um, can be really helpful to us. One of the things that we do with our hospitals or in health clinics, if they will allow us and they will step outside their comfort zone, because just as you just said, sometimes outside their comfort zone is that we ask them to partner with their faith organizations and their communities and provide you know, just a, a motivational moment of health. You know, you've got a captive audience right there. Um, and working with restaurants in the community is actually putting healthy items on the menu and putting a little, you know, symbol on there and, and to do the calories. And it's very simple things that can be done. And I'd just like to see all of you encourage your local hospitals and health clinics and FQHCs do some really good work. There's some wonderful toolkits out there. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this plug while we're on this subject. You all know that November 21st is National Rural Health Day. If you have not gone to powerofrural.org, there are plenty of free community engagement toolkits, even coloring books, which I've been known time to time to pull out on an airplane when I don't want to work on my computer anymore. It's very therapeutic. Um, 
But I would encourage you to make that known to your communities because um, our the health, health outcomes make all the difference for our communities. And so I would appreciate it if you just think about how you can partner with your local hospitals. I'm going to start reading some questions here because I want to make sure that I, I honor the things you have to say. And you'll forgive me because I refuse to admit that I need glasses again. So. <laughs> okay, so locally, our, uh, locally um, they're perpetuating hate, bigotry, um, all the phobias that you can imagine. We don't have to read the list. Uh, not all churches uh, serve as a beacon of hope for community members. And what do we do when this, um, you know, flavor of religion, as they say, of colors uh, and the perceptions of others, you know, how are we going to address this? How are faith communities addressing this uh, you know, on, a, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis when you are in front of your various congregations or whatnot? We have a lot of questions based on this one particular subject. We're, so, Prophetic leadership is, is what is needed, but we see very little of. Um, and the reason I say that is because I was approached by uh, one of my colleagues who said, Robin, if you are quiet, you will be rewarded. If you speak up, <laughs> you will be oppressed and punished. And anyone who stands with the oppressed will be oppressed. Um, so prophetic leadership, I mean, it's what's needed, especially in the life of the church. Uh, but we find ourselves, especially in the United Methodist Church, now that we're in this um, we're embattled over this LGBTQ issue. It is, it is causing us to draw lines of demarcation, uh, us and them, as our church, you know, moves toward a division, a split. And so you have persons who, hey, they got to feed their kids, they got to, you know, take care of families, they got to pay for these huge houses they purchased, that, you know, boats are. And so many of them are not going to get caught up in the fray uh, because they want to protect what they have. And so, yes, uh, prophetic leadership is, is at a minimum right now in the United Methodist Church because people are fearful and they're scared of being punished. Um, and that's a reality. Um, and those who do speak out and do speak up, of course, are the ones who deal with a whole lot of the stress and strain of what it means to be in ministry. I am actually one who leans towards the progressive side in the church, but I'm in a district that is totally conservative. <laughs> totally. That must be so fun. <laughs> and so those struggles of, of where I can enter and where I can't, they're real. And it's also very painful, too. Um, but we are called to be faithful to the gospel, that the gospel that I understand that you are to uh, stand up and speak out, whether that means speaking against the all the isms that we are facing, all of the, the, the division we're facing as it relates to who's in and who's out. That's why we call them courageous community conversations, because yes. you couldn't have courage if you didn't fear. And, and so that's that, you know, it's not false expectations appearing real, because a lot of real bad stuff happens when you yes. do find your, your courage and your voice. So an, another uh, question I have is, uh, when conversations reach difficult or sensitive places, which is 
seems to be a daily occurrence, a common reaction is to go silent. Um, and then you harbor resentment. And, and uh, how do you navigate the tension and, and, and that particular situation represented by silence and dialogues? What are some of the things that you have found are, are strategies, if you will, to, to do the opposite of retreating? So one of the biggest lessons of our work over the past gosh, now two and a half, almost three years, through the People's Supper, which is this model, which is all about bringing people together over the shared experience of breaking bread and sharing a meal, and asking a set of core questions that are based in story to help people connect with one another on a human level. So it was our diagnosis of the problem um, post-2016 presidential election cycle that people didn't know how to see one another as human anymore. And that there's something powerful about sharing a meal and asking questions that start from a place of story and helping people identify um, why they care about what they care about and who they are and whose they are, right? The communities that they belong to that is really powerful for folks. And getting back to, to this point, that is in, in a world that incentivizes our silence and incentivizes um, us Fitting in with the status quo, um, a colleague of mine, Mickey Scott Bay Jones, talks about instead of creating safe spaces, what we ought to create are brave spaces um, that, that ground us in a sense of recognizing that for some of us, there is no such thing as a safe space. There has never been such thing as a safe space. I would argue as people who identify and are embodied as women the world isn't safe for us, right? That, that there are constant threats to our safety, whether that be physically, emotionally, um, mentally. And so what it means to inhabit a brave space is then um, stepping into the discomfort of the moment and pushing through. Um, Mickey wrote a poem called An Invitation to Brave Space that says we have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. We will not be perfect. This space will not be perfect. It will not always be what we wish it to be, but it will be our brave space together. And that, so part of the work of actually confronting the challenges of this moment is being brave enough to start the conversation to begin with. Because what has eroded in our public discourse, and I would argue in our faith communities, is a sense of trust. Um, and that we know, and I'm, one of our mantras of the people suffer that I say all the time, um, is, you know, we know that relationships move at the speed of trust, but social change moves at the speed of relationships. Mm-hmm. And if we don't get this relational piece right, it, I don't know what we don't do. And so one of the ways that's manifested over the past, gosh, we just launched a program in North Carolina working with 50 pastors who are serving predominantly rural congregations in North Carolina, uh, many of whom are theologically in a different place than the congregations are and are facing some of these really real challenges. Um, you know, there's a story from our first retreat of a pastor who's serving a rural congregation who, you know, every week they do this community supper in their community and they wanted to do one um, that was serving Syrian food and re- welcoming refugees. And the pushback this pastor got for bringing politics into the house of worship that was the, the perception, just stifled her. Um, and if serving food to our neighbors and having a conversation about what it means to, to embody radical hospitality is now viewed as a political act in a church that at its core 
ought be about hospitality, right? Ought be, like, they have a whole sacrament in the Christian tradition that's about sharing food together. It's called communion, right? <laughs> like, if that has become a controversial thing, that I think that there is, there is spiritual work to be done. Um, theological work to be done, both from the pulpit and how we relate to one another. And so I do think community conversations, beginning to do bridging across divides through these very simple acts of sharing a meal as one first step, is the first step towards getting us on the right path. But I also think this might be a generational project. Yes, I agree. Because, you know, we you talk about that being controversial. When you think about it, where is that, what is that born from? I mean, that comes from an opinion of a force, and then it, and I think about the work I, I did um, with the University of Illinois Medical Center. Many years ago, I worked with the College of uh, Medicine and then the Department of Psychiatry. And back, I, I don't know if you guys remember this, but there was uh, the nightclub stampede in Chicago when all those people died. And so I, I talked with, the, at the time, he was the, the dean of, the, of that particular um, uh, college, and he said, it's this group think. It's that fear, you know, so everyone's... And so I think it's safer to kind of be in numbers, and then when you, you have one person who breaks out, and you might think they're innovative, and the other person might think they're dangerous. And so um, this is a really good question that I would like for each of you to touch on, too, if you can. How can we build the competencies and skill sets of faith leaders, clergy, to do community development with their towns? Um, and I think, you know, kind of beginning with and providing relief... Uh, and policies and, uh, and, you know, presenting without it being political, how, how do you provide them? How are we developing the skill set? We do leadership development, and that's hard work. So I wonder what, what you're seeing in your communities about developing leaders' skills. I think, uh, you know, through what we do is that, you know, our being a museum that really fosters um, interfaith, uh, uh, you know, programs uh, around uh, interfaith and, and, and other uh, kinds of, you know, education within the school system and that kind of thing. Uh, so what we do is we work uh, with uh, engaging, you know, uh, the community uh, uh, broadly as opposed to just leadership development. I mean, we do uh, a program outreach. Uh, we do parental training uh, in terms of working with, you know, parents around, you know, uh, you know, as it relates to our uh, educational programs and so forth. So we find that it's it's um, it's really uh, effective if you are able to go in the communities and actually work with the broader community, you know, a grassroots community uh, development and building as opposed to just leadership development. So growing so we, together kind yeah, of concept. Grow the community and what about it? And your work and just developing. Well, I, you know, I think especially for faith leaders, one of the things I, I keep saying, death by training, we do so much training, um, you know, for for laity, for, you know, clergy, but for faith leaders. I mean, I think it's more about learning by praxis and building relationships with people, finding out what their skill sets are and honing in on those. So, so it sort of happens you know, from a groundswell, I guess, instead of top-down. Um, but it's just identifying those persons who are the go-getters within those communities and how can we increase their skill sets, sharpen their skill sets. So it's about those communities investing in those persons. Chamber of Commerce has this wonderful uh, women's program in our area uh, who meet. They meet with, with community leaders, 
faith community, secular community, and it's specifically geared towards women. Um, doing uh, personality assessments, yes. all of the, I mean, and those are the ways. So it, it sort of happens from just, hey, you need to join us here. So it's word of mouth. It's identifying people as, hey, you need to think about running for office. You're so passionate about this. Why don't you join me? So it's, it's sort of networking with each other, knowing who those persons are, seeing the people who are always at the city council meetings, the person who's always at the community gatherings, trying to push, you know, uh, join us for this training, join us for this event, you know, be a part of this, come and be a part of this community event. So, so it happens sort of out of the relationships that you build by just being out in the community and identifying those people who have just the, the gifts and the graces, you know, to be the movers and shakers. Yeah. And they just need to hone in on those skill sets and sharpen. Very good. And well, I'll just add a word here because part of my work over the past several years has been connecting with conservative communities as well where the people suffer. Um, and in those communities, I think there is an added incentive to tie whatever actions are happening within the faith community to the scriptures and text of our tradition. So I actually think that there is work to be done um, for those of us who are passionate about this, tying why, what is a, a Christian theology of community organizing? What is it, a Baha'i theology of community organizing? or a Muslim theology of community organizing that is rooted in the sacred text of our tradition that finds authority for those for, for folks for whom the authority comes from the text and the history and the rich tradition. How are we uplifting examples throughout history of the ways in which people of faith have embodied that tradition and that you can help people understand it as a faithful thing to do, right? Particularly in more conservative faith communities, if you're not tying it to the, the text and traditions of, of that particular religion, then folks aren't going to be down with it, right? Like, and so I think there is work for folks to do to tie those two things together and then translate that into resources for, um, in this case, I think this is where clergy can sometimes be useful, right? Translate it into resources for clergy around things like preaching, along, around things like textual studies that folks might be doing, um, whether that's a, a Bible study on Wednesday nights. Um, I'm at my Bible study on Wednesday nights and I'm home in Nashville, right? Um, the average age of people there is probably 65, right? So it's also about also seeing, um, so often we see these issues as disproportionately being young people's issues, right? But seeing in our congregations and congregational community life, the potential for uh, value in organizing and advocacy in every single person, that this is actually an intergenerational project as well. And that is one offering, I think, in this moment that communities of faith have. It's one of the few places where people actually still talk to one another across generations, right? It's one of the few spaces I'm in where, you know, <laughs> at, at one o'clock, I will be on the prayer line. Why? Because the seven-year-olds at my church don't care that I'm talking to y'all today. They care that I'm going to be on the prayer line at one o'clock, right? And, and that's a very real thing. And I, I think as we've become more segregated, both um, geographically, rural from urban, racially, but also generationally, that is an offering. We know how to do... 
I think we know. <laughs> we know how to do community. We know how to do intergenerational community. These communities are with people through the highs and lows of their life, from birth to death, literally, right? And so the question becomes: How do we get back to the richness of those traditions, both written, oral, and just in practice, and call from those, and help people leverage those traditions as a way into deeper advocacy, deeper organizing? A great segue too, because we do a lot of work around leading and managing a multi generational workforce. And we see in the hospitals that we work with, we do a session that we talk about the perspectives and the influences of a boomer generation, a Gen X, a, a millennial, the Gen Zs, and so forth. And it's not that one is bad or good, it's just different perspectives and how we're influenced. And so the next thing I just want to touch on is on education. Um, you know, in this country too, we have a lot of controversy around any religious teachings whatsoever in our education system, but I do think about um, just the notions of, of, of faith uh, in, in terms of empathy and growing our empathy and growing our compassion and growing our sense of community and the need to collaborate. And so I'm wondering if you could share with us any perspectives of how uh, faith organizations are interacting or interfacing with our education system um, you know, in any parts of the world that you're, or this country that you're familiar with, I'd be curious about that. I think that our faith communities are biblically illiterate. Yes. I, I really do. Um, I don't think many of them have a hermeneutic. I they may not even know what the word means, but but in all honesty, I really think that that we are missing something when it comes. I mean, I have pastors who don't lead Bible study, but it's lay people. You know, we're probably the only profession that doesn't have to punch a clock. So, um, so, so one of the challenges is trying to get people biblically literate. I mean, really delving into the scriptures. Um, so the challenge for the faith community, so we don't have the millennials disease in church because they want to hear the real deal. They want to talk about sex. They want to talk about those. And those are not the things that are being addressed in the pulpit. So, so if I have a pastor who believes in abstinence, but you've got a whole lot of single young teenagers here who are pregnant or have children, how in the world can you continue to just say, we're going to talk about abstinence? So, so there is a challenge. There's a disconnect between the church um, and even the people they're called to serve. And, and so there, it, there has to be some reawakening, some um, uh, movement in which we get people back engaged in having conversation around the scripture. So there's not enough education as it relates to biblical uh, text and what it means, the historical context, and how does it apply in a contemporary way. So, so we're challenged by that in many regards, especially as we see more and more pastors entering the ministry who are second career, who are not seminary trained, mm -hmm. because we see a decline in uh, our seminaries are declining as it relates to enrollment. People are not being called. I, I shouldn't say that. People are being called to the ministry. They're just not being called to the ministry of the local church. Mm -hmm. Uh, just because of the average age being 60-something. 
And so if you've got a 20-year-old, no, I think I'm going to go into mission work instead. And where we see ourselves having the most success with young people in ministry is in the mission field, not in the local church. Interesting. Yeah, I think but surely there's got to be an app for that. We've got to be able to have something to connect because this is where we have to connect. We always say you have to connect with people where, where they live. And to your point, you know, to travel a distance for healthcare is the same as traveling a distance to fulfill your your uh, your faith mission as well. So I have another question here: Is how do we empower women in in aiding and healing uh, in the aid and healing of women in rural minority communities that doesn't have the resources that the churches have? That churches have. That if, if there's a community that doesn't have a resource such as the church, how do we? How do faith women faith leaders, whether or not you are you to have a title, how do we, we move closer to healing? One of the projects that we, we work on at Faith Matters Network is a project called Rooted in Resilience. Um, so over the past two years, we've been doing this mapping project, looking at the ways in which um, folks in, within social movements have been approaching the question of healing, at the intersection of social justice healing and um, spiritual traditions. And one of the things that has emerged for us um, in this vast survey, including rural communities, urban communities, we interview people in 17 states, is that people know what to do, right, at their core when it comes to this work of healing. But there is a natural inclination and instinct towards knowing what our communities need and, and that that work is often undervalued Underpaid. There's a whole unpaid economy of care when we talk about healing work, whether that be like actual care for our elders and children, or um, just the the work of doing what I, I mentioned earlier, Miss Weldon did, which is turn a box of spaghetti into a feast. Right? But there are these instincts that I think many um, women and women identified folks have towards providing the very nourishing tools that we need to function in community and that that work is often unseen. And so I think that there is a tendency for us to think that we need to find that national funder to come in and give us a a grant for X amount of dollars. And that's not to say that resources aren't important, that there are finding resources that people need to do the work. And I am a deep believer that we have what we need, right? That there are resources within our um, traditions, both faith traditions, and just the traditions of our local communities, right? Like that, whether it be a quilting circle, right? That there are tools that are available to us that we forget are healing tools that we have lost in part of the, the lack of sort of intergenerational translation, right? The telling and sharing of stories um, that could be liberating for folks and healing for folks. I, I think often um, I have the opportunity a little over a year ago at the National Rural Assembly to be in conversation with Ruby Sales, who's an elder of the civil rights movement, and she made me cry on stage. (laughs) The reason why she made me cry on stage is she said to me, um, you know, Jennifer, one of the things that we forgot to do post-civil rights movement is we we put you into context, in particular the predominantly white context, without giving you the tools for survival that we knew in our own communities, right? Growing up in the segregated South, I knew I was gifted. I knew I was smart. Why? Because I was surrounded by black people who told me that all the time. And that one of the failures of the integration project is we we forgot to translate those stories often out of a mode of protection, right? Like, we didn't want to tell you about our trauma, 
because we wanted to protect you from the reality of our stories. And that is not a unique issue within the African-American community, right? I would argue that there are women's stories that we have failed to tell and stories that we have failed to tell throughout the generations that has led us to a place where uh, secret keeping, right, that, that's out of a mode of protection. And I keep honoring that because I do think that our mothers and grandmothers wanted to protect us against some of the violence they experienced. And there is something liberating about being able to speak our, the truth of our stories into place. In, in the confines of, again, I don't know, it's quilting circles. I want to learn how to quilt. I don't know how to do that. It's a skill that I've lost, right? If it's sharing a meal, that can be the beginning of our healing. It doesn't require a $50,000 grant from X Foundation, National Foundation, that's suddenly interested in rural communities, right? And I mean that with all the shade. <laughs> all the shade. People who are suddenly interested, like rural America just existed, right? In the post-2016 moment. We have the tools for our own healing at our disposal, and I don't want us ever to fall into the trap of believing that we don't. That deserves a, a round of applause. Just piggybacking on what she said and saying that, yeah, we don't need to get grants. I mean, one of the things that we did in our area was bring in all the school superintendents and say, what do you need from us as a church? What do you need? Every single one of them said, we need mentors. They don't need supplies. They didn't ask for money. They asked for mentors, a human resource that certainly our churches can, can offer themselves in such a significant way to help students in school. I love that you said that. I think about you know, you, a town in close to where you were talking about Illinois, and they had a significant problem with synthetic marijuana and pep spice. And in one weekend, um, four young people, 14, 15 years old, came in with stroke-like symptoms. And in one particular case, um, there was a young girl, and they called it a couch coma. And so she was basically in a coma from ingesting this garbage that they concocted into it in a bathtub and all her friends thought she had passed and so they were really scared and they were of course not of their own line and so they were getting ready to take her to the creek and you know one person said stop you know they called 911 and so this prompted the hospital that I work with to uh, we said this is we got to address this so we got we got our clergy, we had the district, the superintendent of the schools, we had the district attorney, we had ER physicians, we filled up the high school. Now, there wasn't a TV station for 50 miles around, but we had 50 TV stations there that night. We had parents and their children, and then we had a question in here about making those connections. And we had some young people tell their stories. They were very afraid, but we encouraged them to share because they were in a place where we were all looking to solve this. And it brought the community together in a way that they had never done before. All the different base, all the different schools and so forth and so on. So I think when we're talking about health disparities, when we're talking about vaping, when we're talking about all the things that are harming us, think about just the idea of getting an invitation. And sometimes it just takes one person to send one organization, just send the invitation. Who here doesn't like getting a nice invitation in the mail to go to something nice, you know? And just do the invitation and see who comes. And the people who come want to be there. And sometimes the people who don't want to be there, you need to invite them to come 
to come with you and to be a part of the conversation. I, I want to I want to talk to you. I want to um, before I ask this next question, I do want to talk about civic participation. And um, who here is familiar with the Healthy People 2020? You know, we're get, so you you know what I'm going to say here when we talk about addressing the social determinants of health and so forth. We talk about the fact that, and I, I don't I won't dig through here to find the statistics, but we do know that we see an improvement in health in the health of those who participate in civic engagement. Right. So whether it's volunteering for their local church, whether it's volunteering for the Rotary or what it may be. And so I wonder, and then we talk about civic participation just in terms of being able to uh, vote and to run and so forth. And we know, I don't know if you've heard the news, but we've got some issues in that area with people's <laughs> rights being taken away with respect to voting. So I wonder how faith leaders, um, men and women faith leaders, how are you all engaging in conversations about civic participation? I have, no, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I'm trying to be careful with my words. Because <laughs> um, there are some communities that are really good at civic participation in voting who sometimes vote in ways that are different than me. So um, what I'll say is this. I do think that there is a role for, um, and historically has been a role, of faith communities to serve, to get in this question of voting, right, as, as everything from voting precincts in a local community to um, projects like Souls for the Polls, right, that actually bring people to polls. Um, and what I see, I live in Tennessee, which has one of the, the lowest voter participation rates in the United States, in fact, um, and, and statewide effort to get black folks registered to vote has been pushed back at the state level from the state legislature, right? And so these are like real challenges. Uh, and so. Sometimes civic participation, especially when it comes to voting rights, needs to happen in a stealth way, right? That there's something about the power of not necessarily needing to um, trumpet that you're registering all these people to vote or doing souls to the poll that actually could be more beneficial, at least to my, my faith community, um, which is a historically black faith community in, in Nashville. Um, what I'll also say is that faith communities have historically been good at things like volunteering, have historically, um, at their best, done the work of civic participation in terms of providing for those who are at, you know, whether it's um, a meal train when someone passes, right, or um, volunteering and doing an after-school program or having um, daycare available for mothers who are, are working um, and opening their doors to that. And so... And there's a very real debate still happening around the separation of church and state and how involved people should be um, from a faith perspective in, in local governance and politics, right? Let's be real, it, it, it's a tension point. <laughs> um, and historically has been a tension point. And so it, it's difficult for me to, to fully engage this question because I'm like, some people are real good at it. I wish they were worse at it. Some folks <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious. There are some there are some communities where folks are handed a list of people to vote for, right in the pew. Um, and again, my own politics. Let me be transparent. My own politics is that some of those people are not people I would vote for, right? And so um, it's a challenge. But I, I do wonder if there's a meta conversation to be had across our faith communities about. What are some of those issues that we can agree on? 
We forget that, you know, in 2010, it was the evangelicals who were leading a reform, reform around immigration reform, right? From a deeply spiritually based place. Um, so it's not that there aren't issues that we can help mobilize people around that are unifying issues. It's just that in today's hyper-partisan, hyper-polarized environment, it's going to take courage. It's going to take some stealth organizing to get people even in conversations with one another to agree on what some of those core things are. Organizing around poverty and should be a unifying issue for faith communities, right? But it isn't right now. I hear you say the word should, and I, I use this line, if you've ever seen me speak, I am not here to should all over you, because we're doing enough of that <laughs> of each other. It's what will we do? We have the way, do we have the will? And I think about the lyrics of the song, and I, and I, I'm not, I think it's maybe India Arish, she says, we need faith, courage, and wisdom, and maybe it's all in that order, uh, or maybe you can turn it around um, as well. So I, I appreciate that. I just think about, uh, you know, when we talk about civic participation, I mentioned this earlier, in our work, we work with a lot of hospitals who need their community support and their d- districts. And so there is a, an election, there's a levy or something involved on the ballot. And our message is not, we cannot say, because we're not a political organization, we cannot say vote for yes or no. We say it is, a, it is your responsibility as a member of this community to vote. And what we're asking you to do before you do that is become educated and have an opportunity to really understand all, not sides, all aspects. So I find, and I'm curious what you think, sometimes if we just change the language, you know, there's this process that we go through, think, know, feel. I think certain things because that's all, that's, you know, what I've heard. I know it because I've experienced it myself. And as human beings, my opinion is that we don't really change our mindset or shift our hearts until we feel something. So we have a conversation about think, know, and feel, and then sometimes your realities are, are really not actually real around it. So I appreciate that. All right, because we got a couple more questions I want to make sure um, that we get to, and this is really tangible things. So besides the excellent example of a, of a credit unit inside a church, how is your church uh, relevant to the working public? How is it physical space being used to advance health, education, and workforce? Any examples of of uh, the actual physical spaces that are being used for uh, community goodness? Just some examples. Are they asking for examples? Yeah, any examples? Um, you know, I have you know, a predominantly Anglo district, and I do have some African-American churches. For instance, I have a, uh, a pastor who uh, has adopted African-American children um, out on a main highway thoroughfare in this area and put up a basketball court and all of a sudden kids started playing. African American kids, Hispanic kids and then the members of the church came and took down the basketball court. (laughs) But what was amazing was the church down the road built one and now that church is booming. I mean just something as simple as a basketball court that will build relationships and attract people to that space is just powerful. Not only that, I mean, now I'm trying to get churches to do uh, day after-school programs, daycare centers. I have a host, a host of huge edifices that are empty, that are growing cobwebs and mold, 
And it's because they don't know how to be in relationship with the persons who they find in their neighborhood, which just happens to be people of color. And, and, the, and, and the hardest part of my work is trying to convince them that God is calling you to be in ministry with those right here under your nose. It's the hardest work. And because, you know, racism is still real. Um, and, and churches are very protective of, of what they have, and, and many of them are unwilling to share what they have with the least of these. But we do have some places and spaces that are being offered and being utilized. I mean, you know, we have one area in our district where se segregation was so powerful, they didn't want to integrate the schools, and they turned over the school buses. And so I didn't have a pastor to appoint to those three churches. And so here's an African-American pastor that I offer you. And they wanted to hang me up. Mm. There was no way they were going to receive Painful. this African-American woman. And so one church would not receive her. The other two did. It's the best thing that ever happened to them. And all of a sudden, this church went from eight members to now 40 in less than six months. <laughs> and it was just because she was willing to be in relationship with them, and now the space is, I mean, they're doing all kinds of wonderful ministry in the community. But I know that it's still, it's still a struggle. Most African-American churches don't have the space. They have a worship space and that's it. But we have a, a host of Anglo churches that have the space that is not being utilized. And it's a, it's a work in progress, believe me. It is a work. It is a challenge. And remember, we're in the Bible Belt, where the belt always gets tightened a little bit more each and every day. And it's, it's a struggle um, to work with churches who are not willing to receive people other than themselves. And we have to be reminded that our children are in spaces where there's diversity. So they're not going to walk into that church and become a member or a part of that church if they don't see diversity. Yeah, I mean, there are concrete examples, I think, across the country of people using faith spaces for things like in Nashville, there's a network of faith communities that serve as emergency shelters in the winter for homeless folks, right? When it gets cold outside, faith communities, mosques, synagogues, and churches open their doors for this program called in the End to actually host every night on a rotating basis anywhere from five to 40 men, women, and families that are unhoused. So that's a very concrete example of how space is being used. I think that the faith communities I see booming the most are the ones who have leaders who are unafraid to use the keys to open it to community needs, right? So when there is a need for a community meeting or um, who aren't stingy about their space. Because I do think that one of the resources that big communities have often is a physical edifice at a time where, in some communities, space is limited. <laughs> and I just, I, both brave space in the metaphorical sense and like physical safe space for children and youth is difficult, right? And so, so much of that though is not a concerted effort, but is on a person by person, a leader by leader basis. Um, and that to me is a challenge, is how do we empower um, faith leaders, both clergy and lay folk, 
to um, resist the urge to be protected and hold their resources so tightly <laughs> that they don't see the opportunity and what it means to release, trying to open the doors of, of the church, of the synagogue, of the mosque, of the kudwar, right, whatever it may be. And so those are very practical examples. I see, you know, often food pantries operating out of religious communities. I see um, at their best after-school programs or basketball hoops going up, community gardens happening, or, you know, in more rural communities, straight-up farms happening, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, are um, using them for, you know, girls' night out, ladies' night out, and right. so forth. We, we only have a few minutes left. I have one big question I'm going to ask everybody, but I just want to say there are so many great questions here, and I'd like to offer this. Um, I don't care if the producers say I can or can't because I'm going to do it. What I'd like to do is um, have a Twitter chat with you. I'd like to have, post your questions, and if the three of you are willing at some point in time with your otherwise, I mean, your busy, busy, busy schedules, is we can post the questions online, and you can check it out at, at, at Pod on Twitter, and I, I just want to make sure that we honor all the questions. But the last question that I want to ask before we break for lunch is, it's not my question, it's from Kathleen from Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Yay, Minnesota. Uh, what brings you hope? Let's go down the line. What brings you hope? So many things. Yeah, yeah no, I'm being serious. I mean, so much of our um, current discourse is focused on what is wrong, what is dying? But, you know, I believe in a tradition that says out of death can come new life, right? And that literally there's a resurrection that happens after death, after physical death um, in the person of Jesus. So, you know, for me, I see hope when I, um, I see young people who are seeing a vocational alignment and providing spiritual care to frontline social movements. So we Last week launched a new movement chaplaincy program. That's a new sort of alternative education space for people to get the skills they need to walk alongside social movements in this moment. We had 100 people sign up for that class. To give you context, the incoming class at my alma mater, Vanderbilt Divinity School, is only 60, right? So there's a hunger for that. I see hope when I, um, I hear people connecting in these intergenerational ways across people suffer as a quick story. Um, in Creed, Colorado, which is a rural community, I think the town's population is something like 300. 25% of the town showed up for a people supper. <laughs> you know, um, 300 people. But, you know, a young, one of the pastors of one of the more conservative evangelical churches in town sat next to a young um, queer-identified man, and they had a conversation and found camaraderie because both of them had been ostracized for their families because of who they were, right? Wow. Like, that is power. You know, I I see hope when I see people dancing (laughs) and, like, finding experiences of joy in this moment because it reminds me that the human experience is not just about pain, but it's about love. It's about joy. It's about finding moments to laugh. Um, And so that gives me a lot of hope that there's some other possibility. I I see hope in a younger generation now that I am a a bridge. Millennials are not young people anymore. And thank God I'm not fresh and shiny, although I'll be young in the church until I'm 45, right? Like, there is something powerful about a new generation of people who have new sets of questions that they're asking that are even different from me at 32. Like, that gives me hope. I just realized you could be my daughter. I would say what gives me hope, there's a religious scholar that says that we are living in the day of religion. 
the day of the debt, the day of judgment now. Uh, and he explains it by saying that all of those things that have been proselytized are really happening right now. So when we see it's seemingly all of the horrible things that we're talking about, you know, the race issues and all of that, uh, the day of the dead or the day of truth, yeah. So we're living in that time now where, you know, those things are coming to manifest themselves. And so uh, you see then, as I said earlier, that, you know, you got a mobilized community, really, you know. Uh, yes, you know, women uh, majorly, but, uh, you know, common people are now, you know, stepping forward and, you know, standing on truth and, 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 and attempting to move things forward. So um, um, every day that um, I guess that's what gets me up every morning because I see, you know, this mobilization. I see this excitement. I see that, uh, you know, uh, you know, just all of this new uh, energy that's really bursting forth uh, to really bring us into this new world order. I see it in the fearlessness of the young people and those yet unborn. Um, I, that's where I see hope. And they're willing to cross boundaries, and they're willing to take chances, and they're willing to be in relationship. It's, it's in the young people and in the women. I believe the women are going to save the church as well as this country. I believe that. <laughs> yes, yes. Talk to so many people, and um, you know, I've been living in this healthcare world for over 20 years. And uh, I talked to a gentleman. I'm, I'm going to the National Rural Lenders Roundtable in DC, and to hear these uh, these guys who are loaning money to communities talk about how important it is to fund affordable housing programs, and you know, to talk about um, you know. Uh, those kinds of issues, economic opportunities. So I hope because we do as much as we, we hear, if we live in that Twitter sphere space, it could feel so heavy to us. I have so much hope because I'm actually having conversations with people who are going out of their way to make sure that others aren't left behind. So I, so I want to leave you with this, um, and then I'll tell you about the podcast, about when this will air. An author that I used to work with many, many, many years ago before I worked in healthcare, I, I worked with some really amazing authors. And I don't know who said the quote, but she said, uh, yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, today is the present, and that is why it's a gift. And my hope is that we, instead of looking past, I tell people, look in the rearview mirror to remind yourself where you've been. But if you were to drive your car home tonight or tomorrow and all you did was look in the rearview mirror, how far do you think you go with before you crashed into something? So remind ourselves where we've been, and that's, I think, part of our healing and we look forward um, to the future and, and, and be present in the moment. And so I thank you all for being present here with us. And I just want to thank you all. I am so honored to be in your presence. Thank you. For your I hope you found this special episode of Rural Matters to be as inspirational as those of us gathered in South Carolina for the Rural Women's Summit. It really was an impactful conversation. Please consider sharing it with your friends, families, and colleagues. We sure do appreciate that. 
At this point, I'd like to acknowledge and thank our Real Matters marketing partners because they make it possible for us to bring these programs to you. First, I'd like to say thanks to Center for Rural Affairs, Community Hospital Corporation, Foundation for Rural Service, the Journal of Research in Rural Education, Learning Blade, and CTA, the Rural Broadband Association, the National Rural Education Association, National Rural Health Association, and Ohio Small and Rural Collaborative, and AASA, the School Superintendents Association, as well as the National Rural Assembly and Save Your Town. These partnering organizations help Rural Matters to be an even more powerful forum for the discussion of the issues affecting rural communities around this country. Now, if you'd like to learn more information about the podcast, or if you have an idea or a a guest to suggest that we talk to or a topic that's of interest to you, just email us at realmatterspodcast at gmail.com. Of course, we'd always appreciate you rating this podcast on iTunes. And as I said, tell your friends and colleagues about us. We do appreciate you spreading the word. I also want to thank our producers, uh, Rural Matters. They are Michael Levin Epstein and Susan Simples. I really do appreciate all their hard work. And I thank all of you for listening. We'll talk to you again next time on Rural Matters. Mm -hmm.